Good morning. I didn't know the order this morning. I thought that rousing rendition of White Christmas was a heck of a way to launch into 30 seconds of silence. So. Anyway, Merry Christmas. We've had a couple of really great uh, candlelighting services here. If you are here last night, um, I do have the same outfit on. I slept down in the basement last night because I had to be back here, so why go home when you've got work to do? Um, just kidding. So let's, uh, let's drop into silence for 30 seconds, and then I'll offer a chant in this very room and a, and a prayer. So let's begin. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So in the beautiful words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Emerson said, I can't hear a word you're saying because who you are speaks so loudly. And so what are you broadcasting this day as I ask myself that question? And so I invite you to work with the question, what is here now if there's no problems to solve? That moves us into awake awareness. It moves us into spaciousness. It stops the busy mind. What is here now when there are no problems to solve? Because there are no problems to solve. Life is perfect just the way it is. And as we look at it and view it, we get to decide how we shall participate in the perspective and the clarity and the power or the victimization that we bring to it. How are we holding life this day? And so I invite you to know this with me so that we may hold life in the fullness of it. That there is one power and one presence that each and every one of us is, is pregnant this day with the Christ consciousness. And in knowing that and accepting that and understanding that what is here now is that awareness, that spaciousness, that gracefulness, that spiritual sacred home, each and every one of us. This is truly who we are. So we are here to welcome back the light. We are here to give birth to something amazing, a story so powerful that it can only be, be spoken in metaphor but a story that is so true for each and every one of us. 
And so I give thanks this day knowing that this day is alive with everything necessary for each and every one of us, for each person upon this planet. We see them from 30,000 feet from that spiritual perspective to know that their soul is eternal and that despite their good opinions of themselves, they are not their minds, they are not their bodies, they are not their egos, they are not their personalities. There's something far greater. And so standing in that graciousness, standing in that spaciousness, I give thanks this day to be blessed by this wonderful, beautiful teaching of healthy-mindedness. Spiritual psychology, as Dr. Holmes called it. So in this grace and beauty, I give thanks in this season of light and the light on this planet returning. I'm so grateful. I release these words and invite you to say with me. And so it is. Mm-hmm. There's a future preacher back there competing with me right now. And I love you wherever you are. I met, I met him earlier. Beautiful little guy. That's right. I am, I am a seasoned grandfather. I know exactly what he's saying. Hey, buddy. You know, I thought I was getting something was going on with my eyes this morning because there were these green floaters just going down. It was like, what's up with that? There he is. So if he gets too rambunctious, he can come up here and do the talk with me. I'll hold him, okay? All right. So I want to share some ideas with you today. It's uh, based on... uh, the wonderful, I want to thank uh, Darren Griffin. Darren turned me on to a wonderful scholar uh, a year ago by the name of Alexander Shia. And Alexander is just a remarkable scholar and, and theologian. And he's got a body of, of information that is so, so beautifully aligned with what we teach. And uh, he, has a, he has a talk on uh, a podcast called The Christmas Radiance. And it's such a wonderful story that I, I wanted to share it with you again. I did it last year when we did a, you know, it floats around. Christmas morning last year, there were about 10 people here. And I thought, this is great. I can use this talk again. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> See, you always got to think practically about this stuff, you know. So um, the Christmas story in the first century. And, and in the first century, Luke was, you know, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke wrote about, they think, around uh, 80, right after Jesus was up to 30, and then he wrote around uh, 40 years later. And what Luke wrote about, see, which is, which is beautiful with the research that uh, Alexander's done, Alexander Shia, is Luke was writing to the people of the time, the people that followed Jesus, or were interested in following Jesus there's only two places in the Bible where the, the, the birth story takes place. One is in Luke and one is in Matthew. And so, this period of time, what was happening when, when Luke wrote this um, gospel was that the temple had been crushed. Uh, Titus, the emperor from Rome, had come in and ground the temple into dust. There was nothing left which was very, very disheartening for the Jewish people because their place where they worshipped, where God lived, God resided, was the temple, and the temple was gone. And the other thing that was happening was the Pharisee had, become, had, had come into uh, prominence because they were sort of the mediators. Now, the Pharisees were the golden boys in the Jewish tradition. 
even though the story of Jesus, you know, they, there's a lot of the, the betrayal that went on, but you've got to have betrayal to have a resurrection, so keep that in mind. But the Pharisees were the ones that transitioned the Judaic tradition of, of the, the cultic practices into the rabbinic practices. In other words, the rabbis started, they were the ones that helped transition into the, uh, uh, the rabbi practices of the time. And what was happening then was, at that period of time, was so that the temple was destroyed and the Pharisees had become corrupted. They were corrupted with power, influence, and they, and they, were, they were taxing the Jewish population excessively. So it was like, there was almost like a 1% that had all the money. Can we relate? Like history repeating itself? So people were really in a, a period of despair. There, there was no hope. And so this is the setting that Luke wrote because he had a message for the, for the, uh, for the Jewish people. It's a remarkable and it's a beautiful message. And I'll share a bit of that with you. Get into Luke's story. So Luke, if you don't know the Bible real well, and I'll give you, I won't go into all the details. I thought about reading it to you, but then I thought, oh my gosh, no, we won't do that to you today. It's Christmas, come on. So um, the culture was shifting to the rabbis, and Titus had crushed the Jewish people at that time. The temple was destroyed. And so the Pharisees had become these, these manipulators and organizers. So Jerusalem at this time was basically a ghost town. So isn't it interesting that Donald Trump is now moving the embassy back to Jerusalem and he's been, you know, there's a little bit of controversy around that. We shall see. But it's fascinating to watch some of these patterns reemerge. So at, the, at this time, as I mentioned, to the Jews at that time, it appeared there was no hope. They had been crushed. There was nothing that for them spiritually. There was nothing. Hope was lost. It was a period of massive, massive disorientation. And for many, it felt like there was nothing left to live for. So what happens is Luke identifies the wall of shame. It's the emperor, it's the priest, it's the governor, and they're all lined up there. So the Jews are not able to look to the government for any help at all. It's just despair. They can't look to the temple. Everything is corrupt, terrible days, and everything is upside down. But Luke's message is more than hope. Luke says that when you think there's no turnaround keep going. When we think there's no turnaround, keep going. And he was writing to the, his people. Luke says, you know, this is a painful moment, but we can get through this. He writes of hope. Keep going, keep belonging, keep believing. So what happens in Luke's narrative, I'll give you some of the highlights, an angel of Gabriel, he sends an angel of Gabriel to appear to Zechariah and to Mary. So what happens when the angel of Gabriel appears to Zechariah? Because Zechariah goes into the temple and he's praying that he and his wife can have a baby. And he goes into the temple and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and all of a sudden the angel Gabriel appears. And so what Zechariah does is he says, well, and the angel says, your, your wish, your prayer will be fulfilled. Your, your wife will be with child. And right away, Zechariah does what most of us do. So the blessing shows up, the light goes on, the blessing shows up, and he says, well, what school should he go to? And I'm, you know, I'm kind of old, and this is like, he's gonna cost me money, and what are we gonna name him, and who's he gonna hang out with? And, and, and finally, Gabriel just says, shut up, you dummy. <laughs> In fact, he not only tells him to shut up, he makes him dumb. He can't speak. 
So all his friends are outside the temple praying, the way the narrative goes, outside the temple praying for Zachariah to get his, his wish, his prayer answered. His prayer is being answered, and he's in there questioning the message. And he comes out, and all of his friends say, what happened in there? And he can't speak. In, in the narrative by Luke, I read it this morning a couple times, he said he communicated with his eyes. What happened? I don't know how you tell somebody Angel Gabriel just showed up with your eyes, but how do you do that? But that's what he did. So Zachariah is an example of how many times our prayers get answered and we doubt it and we question. What am I going to do now? Oh, another mouth to feed. Oh, boy. In fact, there he is right there. See him? He's like, hey, get out of here. What are you? You, you creepy little fog path there? So, so this is about six months before the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. Now, you've got to understand, this is, this is not a literal story. This is metaphor, and it's myth, because it's so true. It's got to be told this way. See, Luke is making this up to give people hope. And so Mary, Mary's there, and what does Mary do? The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Now, there's four primary angels in the Jewish tradition at this time. Gabriel is the angel of, so there's significance. Angel is, Gabriel is the angel of perseverance and resilience. And then there's Michael, the angel Michael. And he is the warrior. He's the protector. And there's angel Raphael. And Raphael is about healing. So in that tradition, and my mom prayed to all these angels, so we had them all over the house, you know, rosaries and angels and holy cards and holy water and ah, Jesus Christ, all that stuff. So, And then there's uh, the angel Ariel. And Ariel is the bearer of light. And what happened when, in the transition from the, the, from the tradition of the Jewish people to this idea of the new rabbi, which was Jesus of Nazareth, they, they, they switched Ariel and gave the bearer of light to Jesus. But you still got to have a bearer of light. We need symbols. We need metaphors. So angel Gabriel shows up and says to Mary, you will be giving birth to something unique and special. And she just ponders it. And she's in wonder. And she doesn't understand all of it. But she doesn't, under, she doesn't question. She just says, okay. I'm on board. And there's a lot of ramifications with her saying yes to this without questioning. Without She didn't ask the questions that Zachariah did. She just said, I'm good. I'm sure she had much contemplation with it. Well, what she did was, she said to him, your will be done. Your will be done. Because she partnered. She was a woman. See, she was from the priestly class. And she was also from the royalty of the Jewish tradition. And so she had a, a, a bit of a pedigree in what she appeared, and she was held in great prominence, her and Joseph both. And she said, thy will be done. Just tell me what my part is. What must I do? So her prayer was, and her, her, her response wasn't a question. It was, what must I do? Which I think is so significant, because if we are, if we are the thing itself, if we are this individualized expression of the infinite, then perhaps the question is, what's for me to understand here? Where am I going to send my kid? And what am I gonna, how am I going to feed him? And where are they going to go? And on and on and on. What must I do? What wants to be healed here? I think is a much more potent question. Because when we ask that question, what wants to be healed here? Because we're all in this path where we've fallen asleep in this maya or this dream that this is all real. That we're our bodies, we're our egos, we're our bank accounts, we're our houses, we're our cars. And all that stuff is part of our lives. And the qualities we bring to that can be uh, uh, celebratory and, and beautiful, or it can, you know, it can take us off the rails. We can become obsessed about some of those things. But it's not who we are. 
And so she's speaking to, Mary understood this for some reason, that the, the, the mythical Mary understood something beautiful was happening and she didn't have to understand all of it. This is why when we do our affirmative prayer, we don't outline it's this or something better. What we do is we dip into that union, that unified state of oneness and we, and we can say our prayer from that. So anyway, Mary says, hey, all I'm gonna do is keep doing my spiritual practice. So whatever she did to, to, to maintain direct connection, her oneness, this sense of non-duality, despite everything that's going on, despite the temple being gone, despite the corruption with the government and the Pharisees, despite the despair that's going on with these people, there is no hope, it is all over. There's no way out. But see, she, she knew I just have to do spiritual practice and if this is true, it will happen because I know the promise is true. I know it won't happen and I don't have to figure it out. It's faith, pure faith. So Luke was writing to the followers of Jesus at that time. This is about 40 years after he had been um, uh, taken out of his body. He was, he, and Jesus was not trying to establish a new faith, but he was trying to reform the Jewish tradition. And in this tradition, what was happening, so Mary and Joseph represent what's, what was required to make the transition into the new philosophy, to revolutionize what had become stagnant within the Jewish tradition. And so they were there to help this shift, but it had to get dark first. It had to all fall apart for the newness to show up. And one of the pieces that happened was because Mary was of the priestly caste and she was also royalty along with Joseph, because Joseph came from the royal family of David, they were thrown out by the, of the tribe. They were disowned by the tribe. They were, they were cast aside because they, were, they had the audacity to stand with this radical Jesus who was crucified. Because what happened at that time when, when Jesus came along and Titus was there and all of the other people along uh, this, this Roman tradition, first of all, they, and they, they looked at these zealots. These people were on fire with spirit. They were on fire with this, this presence within them. And they started passing rules and laws that made it illegal to participate in their spiritual practices this way. Well, that didn't work, so then they just started killing them because they couldn't dissuade them through the laws. The laws weren't having any effect. So here comes Mary and Joseph, and they say, yeah, thy will be done, but they had to be cast out of the tribe. In fact, when Jesus spoke his first gospel in Luke, now Luke writes this as well, Jesus went back to his hometown and he, he, he um, preached. And what did the folks do? in his hometown. They said, you so-and-so, you have blasphemed us. We are not happy with you. We are going to kill you. So they chased him to the cliff to throw him off. Man, that's a rough first uh, lecture, isn't it? For a guy, but that's, that's what Luke wrote about. To emphasize that Jesus was a radical, it was a new idea, and he was pressing against the status quo. And at that point in time, they'd kill you. No problem. No questions asked. You have offended us and we will ritually kill you. And in the gospel, he gets away. So what happens is, is Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth, who is the wife of Zachariah, who's six months prior to her, Mary goes to see her and they share their stories and she spends three months there. But what happens is part of the narrative is that because Mary and Joseph are held to a higher standard by the Jewish tradition because of their heritage, they give up all that privilege. They're thrown out of the cast, and they have to journey. So they have to leave home. They leave their friends and family, and they have to go on this journey to another city so that they can have this baby without being harmed, themselves and the baby. 
In fact, Mary is now considered a scarlet woman. So they both give up the privilege by saying yes to God. See, we'd like to think that when we say yes to God, it's all going to be sweet and wonderful. But the story here is that sometimes you've got to, you've got to give up everything to get there. So Luke wants us to have Mary's sense of knowing, is what he's trying to tell us. Mary was certain, no doubt. She knew. There's something within her that stood grounded in that. She knew the promise is real. She trusted it. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem is a metaphor for being cast out. They've been rejected by the family. No, no family to go to, no place to go. They must find a place to give birth. And they find the place which is the lowest of the low. They find the place in a manger which is filthy, full of animals and smells, which is another representation. So she's rejected by the family of the Jewish tradition. And the second is the wounds. There's a, the, the emperor sees how passionate and vital these followers are of Jesus. And he, once again, he wants to get rid of them. So many people at this time are in such despair, they don't believe that a turnaround is possible. And then when Mary and Joseph, in the story, as the story goes, are in the manger. Now, they're in the manger. In the, in, in the Jewish tradition, this is the lowest of the low because much of the rabbinic t- tradition is cleansliness. It's so many acts of cleanliness throughout the day, it's impossible to fulfill them, but it's all about cleanliness. And that's why we have things like the kosher foods and things like that. It all goes back to this idea of cleanliness. So they end up in this manger, and the angel comes and talks to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds at the time were also the lowest of the low. That was the worst job you could get at that point in time. In fact, if you were a shepherd and you were walking into town 15 minutes before you got to town, before anyone saw you, they could smell you coming. Because everybody, the shepherds just live with, the, with the, uh, the lambs. And they smelled like the lambs. So what Luke is trying to tell us is, is that we are pregnant. We are all pregnant with the Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful narrative from Alexander Shaiev. How we are all pregnant with the Christ. This Christ consciousness that lives within us. Mary's example is an act in faith. And she says... If you know and you believe, that Christ will take you the rest of the way. And it's a, it's a message of hope for these people that had no hope at that point in time. It's a message of possibility. It's a message to say, if, you, you, if you're in despair, keep on keeping on. Because there's a new radiance. See, the, the beautiful thing about, uh, I don't know if that's a real picture of Mary and Joseph. I don't know who took that back then, but I found that online. You go, you start pumping this stuff in and you, there's images and after image after image. And I'm like, man, this is the greatest story ever told, isn't it? And it is. But, but it's, such a, it's such a mythic story and why has it had such legs for 2,000 years? Because it's true. There's something within us that knows that this story is true. And it's a wonderful thing. I, I, next week I'm going to tell you a, a little bit about some of this, the, where this Christmas tree stuff comes from and, and how we ended up with these dates. Because these were not the days that Jesus was born. But they are three days from the solstice. And three days in the Christian tradition is very important if you've ever read any of that story. So it's a new radiance that is opening up and it starts in the darkest places with the lowliest people. It starts in the darkest places with the lowliest people. Radiance is born in darkness. Mary doesn't worry. She believes. She knows. And she knows it's going to turn around. This is where it's birthed like Mary. Just keep going. In the metaphysical teaching, we're all the characters in the Bible. One of the things, so, so it's, it's important to dive into the darkness. It's important to look there. 
You know, we brought this Q process, and I'll tell you, it's a whole process of looking at the things that are dark about us, the things that are unowned with us, because that's where the radiance is born. And as a community, we're ready to give birth to the radiance. But until we confront the darkness, we can't have the totality of it. So it's not scary, it's actually an opportunity, and this is exactly what Joseph and Mary did. They stepped into it. Mary knew something beautiful wanted to happen through her. And something beautiful wants to happen through you and me. And we don't have to understand all of it, but we do have to do our spiritual practice. We do have to pay attention to what we're thinking and what we're bringing into our lives and how we're behaving and where we get triggered and where we get stuck and where we get angry and where we get greedy and where we get selfish and where we point fingers. All that stuff is our humanity. And we can do that. We've been given the freedom to do that. You can do that till the cows come home. But it doesn't, doesn't offer any value to us, to the world. It doesn't fulfill what your soul has come here for. So how do we stand in the faith? The question, how do you stand in the faith and know and not question? Because we can be just like Zachariah, or we can be just like Mary, or somewhere in between. So it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Every one of us carries a deep darkness. And when we go there, we find that radiance. We find that radiance. Steve Sandy brought out the pictures of possibility. Those pictures got put away for a long time because there were so many other exciting things we were doing around here that we, we put away the vision of possibility. And it's back there. There's a, there's a proclamation you can sign. We're not going to call you. We're not going to ask you for money with that proclamation. We're just saying, I'm in. Are you all in on your life? Are you all in on what wants to be given birth for you? Because it's unique and beautiful and powerful. And if you don't give birth to it, we all lose. So there's the message. There's the Christmas message, I think, that is so brilliantly articulated in this Gospel of Luke. Are you all in or not? Now, I'm all in. I got, nothing, I got nowhere else to go. I got no other teaching that's going to pull me up by my bootstraps and, and gift me. You can't do my healing for me, and I can't do your healing for me. But we can stand together, and we can dive into the darkness, and we can give birth to the radiance in 2018. So if you're called to it, sign that proclamation out there when you go out. And it's really a proclamation for you as well. You're in for the greater yet to be for yourself and for the world and in service to something beautiful and wonderful. So in the season of light and the season of joy and celebration, I thank you. I say Merry Christmas. I'm really delighted. This is the only talk that my son Davis will hear all year long because he lives in Victoria now and it's the only time he comes to church is when he has to. So I hope... (laughs) It's really good motivation for me to, to bring my best. So blessings and, and Merry Christmas. You doing it? Cool.